Welcome to Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve podcast, where you get a guaranteed return on investment of your time as we cut your learning curve with the information you can apply to your farming operation immediately. Extreme Ag, we've already made the mistakes, so you don't have to. Managing your farm's water resources is a critical component to a successful and sustainable farming operation. Advanced Drainage Systems helps farmers just like you increase their yields up to 30% with their technologically advanced water management products. Visit ADSPipe.com to see how they can keep your business flowing. Now, here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings and welcome to another installment of Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, with another great program for you today because I've got a great guest. He's one of the Extreme Ag team. His name is Lee Lubers, Gregory, South Dakota, large-scale farmer who has done some things pretty well ahead of the curve that are going to help you shorten your learning curve, which is what we promise you here on the Extreme Ag Cutting the Curve podcast. You give us a few minutes of your time, and we will save you days, weeks, months, even years by shortening your learning curve by learning from people who have been there and done that. Lee Lubers is one of those guys. We're talking today about switching to no-till and making no-till work on a large scale operation. He has been doing this for quite some time. He's gonna share all of his experience with you about how to make no-till work. You know, soil is agriculture's most valuable asset. Are you protecting it? One way you can do that is by instituting a no-till operation. Lee, Welcome to the Cutting the Curve podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, give us a real background, quick background here. Luber's Farms out there in Gregory, South Dakota. I did my research and I went to your website, but uh, the listener and the viewer here has not. Tell us about your background. Uh, We are a fourth generation operation uh, here in South Central South Dakota. Uh, We're a no-till operation, uh, corn, soybeans, and winter wheat is our three primary crops. We have raised sorghum and sunflowers also. And we even dabbled with edible beans many years ago. Uh, But yeah, dry land environment, we're just off the Ogallala aquifer and no access to it. So we've got to make dry land work and no-till has been a great fit for us. All right, by the way, uh, pretty big scale operation. We're, uh, we're a number of acres that are now being farmed in the Luber's farm. Yeah, we're about 17,000 tillable. Uh, our pasture and hay ground, we actually sublease out. So we focus on our own crops, our cash crops and, and limited labor too. It's, it's my brother, myself, uh, Rich has been with us uh, now his uh, 22nd year. And we have Marco from South Africa, who was uh, with our harvest crew that wanted to work in a farm. So he is helping us out in the seasonal aspect. And that's basically our workforce. Okay, so it's uh, it's it's you, you the business guy, your brother's in more of the, from my uh, research, more, he's the more the, the shop and mechanical and equipment guy. Is that right? Yeah, we both have strengths and weaknesses. And my brother and I, we came to the realization years ago that if we work together, we were gonna be stronger. Uh, And I'm more business oriented, he's mechanical oriented, but yet we talk openly about everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we talk about scheduling on shop projects and we agree in the schedule, but when I walk in the shop, he's in charge. When he comes in the office, he'll ask me about what's going on. But 
we're, we're an open book and that's kind of been our strength and and then acknowledging strengths and weaknesses i've seen too many operations where uh people think they're the jack of all trades or they get butting heads with other family members and that's self-defeating so we know we're stronger together i like that strengths and weaknesses and also accepting it acknowledging it and then embracing it you do this i do that we'll both we'll both be an open book but we're going to concentrate strengths here and there but let's talk about the big switch because after all this is about no-till and making no-till uh work you were a conventional operation you know you're you're in your early 50s you've been around this your whole life uh you know mom and dad probably what sent you out there when you were a kid with a John Deere 4020 and a five bottom plow. I don't know, but I mean, you, you, you've been there, right? So go take me on the evolution from you being growing up, uh, you know, when plow disc run the cultivator it over a couple of times, you know, we just went out there and drove over that ground. It seemed like seven times a year, right? Tell us about the evolution. When we were younger, we were mostly a livestock operation. We had about 400 acres of farm ground and a lot of that was for feed but we did corn and cane. So you're always cultivating and disking and chiseling. Uh, my brother and I each went to uh, Votech College. We were the first ones in our family to go to college because our parents literally made us. We wanted to stay home and say, hey, times are tough. We want to help. And they said, no, if you don't go now, you're not going to go. And they're looking back, absolutely right. Uh, and so each went off to Votech. I went for ag business. My brother went for ag management. Uh, when we both came back to the farm, we were four years apart in college and uh, spend all of our time when we wasn't in college, we drive back every weekend and work in the farm. Uh, we started raising soybeans in 1986. We were the first people to do it on any scale in our county. And we go, man, what a great way to plant winter wheat. But we, there was no no-till equipment. So we were disking it and, uh, and then drilling it so we get seed to soil contact. And everybody else saying that'll never work. If you want to raise wheat, you got to follow it and take two years to get it. We're like, no, we can do it in one year. Well, within two years, that was common practice. And we were showing everybody locally it could work. Hey, wait a minute, just so I understand. And so the person listening to this that might be in uh, a part of the world that gets 60 inches of rain, whereas you up there get, I'm guessing, 20 or so. Yeah, in a good year, we can be 20 annual precip. Okay. so. So in Gregory, South Dakota, the method was just so that the person's like trying to understand how no-till might work for them in a different climatological zone. You 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 sort of um, broke with the convention because uh, you brought in soybeans that was not done in Gregory, South Dakota in the mid '80s, and then you said as soon as those beans are harvested, we're going to go in and we're going to do a quick pass with the disc, and then we're going to stick the we're going to drill wheat. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, where the common practice was summer fallow, and it was a two-year process. Uh, we even had neighbors tell us, well, you guys are doing on Neville work. Yeah, your wheat's got to take two years. And we're like, no, we don't think that's correct. Somebody might out there just, honest to God, there might be a 23-year-old kid that's listening to this that wants to, you know, really become a progressive farmer fallow. That might be foreign to them. Tell them what that means. Uh, it would be, at that time, it was all intensive tillage. Uh, nobody was doing chem fallow. Uh, Roundup was uh, not really used that often. So people were out uh, disking, chiseling, turning the ground black, and there was a lot of erosion. Well, you let it sit. The point is, you'd let it sit for a year off to gain moisture. Yeah, but you but you are losing to evaporate evaporation right. horrendously. So you're only gaining so much for moisture, 
and then the erosion from the black ground and no residue. I remember back in the late 80s and early 90s, where especially to the west of us, where it was a common practice, a lot of guys, they were wheat farmers, the sky would be black in the spring. Yeah. It was like, it was just a sickening feeling. We're like, we can't be a part of this. So we started making some changes, trying some things. And then fast forward up to 1995, a local John Deere dealer gave us a one of the first John Deere air seeders ever made that they ordered in. And they said, will you guys try it? Because nobody will buy it. We thought we could get to use it for a day. They let us have it for a week. And we were getting so much better seed to soil contact versus using a double disc drill that we were trying to no-till with. The That opener was huge. That, that uh, well, John, you're still using the same design, essentially. That revolutionized how we could do no-till. Just so, uh, going back to our thing, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And you're in a part of the world where, you, you know, there's a lot of people that don't have to do no-till. And they just, they, they, they only did, they, their family never did it. They're, they're just, they're against it, whatever. You looked at it as, first off, we were letting ground sit for a year with no crop on it, hence fallow. Like I said, there's there's young folks right now that don't know what fallow means. You're, you're letting ground sit for a yearly that's not making you any money. Worse yet, to keep it so that it wasn't a weed patch, you'd go out and work that ground up. That was the common practice. There's a term called snurt. Tell people, you were talking about erosion. Snurt, you've heard the term, right? Yeah, it, it was snurt and dirt in the okay. ditches. And what that means to the, listen, to the listener that's not from your part of the world, tell them what snurt means. Uh, dirt and snow, and it was- uh, And it blows. There was dirt in the ditches. We're still tearing out old fence rows from that era and blading the dirt back into the field. And yeah, then so when it snowed, the ditches, they were brown. It, it, was, it was ugly. And also you doubled your land expense because for one year you got nothing. So you had double the land cost into your wheat crop. And here we were getting as good a yields as anybody else. And then we got more intensive on fertility. And then that the John Deere opener revolutionized things for us. And it was kind of funny. We demoed that for a week and then we took it back to the dealership. And then later we said, we wanted to buy it. And they said, actually one other guy bought it about an hour away. And we go, okay, well, will you order one in for us? We want to trade. And they said, no, we won't order an air seeder in because they said nobody wants them. And we said, we'll, we'll sign the papers, we'll do it. They did not even want to trade because there was such a hard time at that time getting anyone to even accept the thought of no-till. And then finally in 1999, uh, we got a dealer 100 miles to the east to accept our drills and on trade, and we got our first air seeder, and we never looked back. Okay, so again, going back to the reason. First off, profitability, getting, you're, you're taking, you're doing something brand new out of necessity. You and I both realized erosion was a problem. An hour west of you, the sky was black. Snurt, which means snow and dirt blows around all winter. It's terrible because you're, you're working up this ground and, and letting it sit there and blow away. So you saw it and your brother saw it and said, from a resource utilization and also protection uh we're going to preserve this resource you, you say that's what we're going to do but also it was the idea that you spread out some time and money i mean you looked at it and said this works great we get those beans off what in late october mid-october we can still mm -hmm. put a wheat crop in yeah yeah we were we were the first people to do that and it was nothing but naysayers 
that you, you can't do that, you can't make it work. And then once we showed people that it could work, then more people started looking at it. But it was kind of funny that back in that era, we could not even get our local John Deere dealer to order another air seeder back in because he said nobody wanted to demo it and we didn't think we were going to get it sold. We don't want to take that chance again. Even if you told them we're going to pay for it right now, they wouldn't bring it to you. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do the order. Okay, so what did you do in the interim? So it worked for you and the air seeder worked for you, but then you didn't have it. So then you were just drilling beans? We were running a double disc drill and they were starting to put on hydraulic down pressure, but we could not get the down force we needed. So we had inconsistent seed depth. And uh, so you were limping along. We called it dusting it in. Uh, once we got to the no-till opener, then we achieved better seed to soil contact and consistency. The, the year that we did that in 95, then in 96, when we combined the wheat, we split numerous fields. We drill and seed in the same fields, my brother and I. We averaged over 10 bushel an acre to the pile on everything that we did with the no-till opener. And that was an eye-opener. And then we could not get anybody that was willing to even trade for one that would get one in. Until 1999, we finally talked a dealer into doing it. By the way, the person has never done no-till, what you're talking about with down pressure, since we're teaching them about some of these practices, uh, that's because of residue. Can you get, expand on that just a little bit? Yeah, you have to have good down force so you can get uh, a nice consistency in your cut so you can lay your seed in even. And prior to that style of opener, the single disc John Deere opener, we could never achieve that. And uh, we were trying to also no-till corn and we were even adding extra down pressure springs, more weight, anything we could do to the insecticide boxes, anything to get more weight to get the planter into the ground. Because where we could, we could see we were raising better crops. But again, there was not the equipment to do it. I mean, there's been huge advancements in the last 20 years. It's It's been a long journey. So let's talk about that long journey. Uh, you were pretty early on. Uh, you were actively farming by, I'm guessing here, well, the mid eighties, right? So, uh, mm -hmm. and you were still just uh, about in high school, starting college in the mid eighties. And then by the nineties, you're full tilt on this. You're saying no tills the way we're going to go, because first off, we don't have to follow stuff. We're, we're getting more crop out of the thing and it saves us labor. Tell us about some of the other transitional headaches. You couldn't get equipment. Some of the other transitional headaches, do you make any boo-boos? Uh, yeah, we learned residue management is critical. And at that time, uh, walker machines, it was hard to get a good spread pattern. Uh, the choppers couldn't chop it up enough. And we tried numerous things to work with our wheat's double residue, uh, harrowing it, uh, running coulters over it, uh, you name it. Uh, yeah, it, it was kind of a struggle because we're in an environment uh, we're trying to conserve moisture and we were gaining on yield, but also at the same time, it's hard to get good residue decomposition when you're an ice brick for about four to four months out of the year, minimum. Uh, so as things evolved, uh, our uh, earthworm count started to increase uh, dramatically and that helped. And then we started working more with uh, focusing on soil biology and getting our soil functioning better. And that even involved everything from working with biological products to even getting a more balanced approach in fertility. 
You were doing, by the way, a few fun things here. The person that's saying, okay, I want to be a revolutionary, but Lee and his brother, Jerry, are very much revolutionary. Remember, the know-it-all dumbasses that we all know exist out here in the countryside, they go to, they go to, the, they go to the coffee shop and talk about how so-and-so down there, they don't know what they're doing. You had to suffer through a couple of years of that when you're trying to get this right. You had to suffer through the know-it-all dumbasses going to the coffee shop talking about you because your residue management was a struggle. You weren't getting good seed to soil contact. Uh, didn't have the right equipment to do it in some cases. How was that? Uh, well, I don't hang out at the coffee shop. That's first thing. Uh, through a friend, we nicknamed anybody with that attitude, caveman, citizens against virtually everything. Uh -huh. uh, negativity and everything. Uh I admire and respect people, whether they farm 500 acres or 50,000 acres. And I have friends that do both because they're good at what they do and they care about the land and they do a good job. And that was our focus is like, we want to be better. We need to be better. We need to keep advancing. And actually our parents were supportive of that. So we were very, very fortunate to have that. You know, uh, it wasn't the financial backing, it's the emotional backing, the, the emotional support of go for it, do it, you know, uh, do your thing. Uh, you talked about then realizing that this was working. You started looking out there and you said earthworm count. That's something that the average person doesn't think a thing about. You started looking at things like earthworm count because then you're improving porosity through the soil profile. Is that what I'm gathering? Uh, earthworms are our tillage. Uh, what we're able to achieve with earthworm counts is for us better than ripping the soil. Uh, We've got friends in Minnesota and they do ripping and in their environment, they're trying to get the ground blacker for the higher rainfall. But even they tell me, if you rip 14 inches, you're probably gonna have a hard pan at 16. If you go 16, it's gonna be at 18. Mm -hmm. You keep chasing it. Where with earthworms, we have that natural porosity and with the different species, you have it from the top of the soil to down three to four foot deep. And so we have root channels and aeration all the way down the more we work and keep increasing our earthworm counts, it, it's huge. Uh, it's interesting, I can go to wheat stubble after it rains, and when the sun comes out, the sound is deafening from all the earthworm activity and all the percolation going into the ground. It's just literally deafening. And we know we're doing things right. And we've even noticed in the last several years that when it rains in the spring, when the earthworms come out, they come out on the highway along our fields, along highways, literally the road is almost greasy. And then you go to the line, a neighbor's field, hardly any earthworms on the road. Go down, here we have the ground for another mile and the road is just greasy with earthworms. I mean, they're even coming out on the road in the spring. And every time I take my daughters out and we're checking fields, we always dig in the ground and we're doing earthworm counts. And the higher our counts, the better our yields, the better the soil health. Uh, they're recycling nutrients in the soil. They're, they're nature's chelator. They chelate all nutrients. Uh, this year we were planting in the fields and the mounds and middens, the poop, was literally the ground is just covered and you could faintly feel it on the tires of the tractor. You had that much earthworm activity out in the fields. First off, you, you, you know, this, this, this guy here that wanted to be an agronomist, uh, I'm getting giddy about this, you know, former FFA soil judger as I was, but you used a word that even I have not heard. Chelator? Chelator? What'd you say it was? 
chelator, uh, earthworms as, as they are uh, digesting residue in the soil, they're taking that and they're, they're chelating that into, into nutrients. So you're gaining mm -hmm. very nutrient dense for their mittens, for their poop. And uh, yeah, it's, we've seen so many benefits out of it. It's, it's part of soil biology. Uh, it, it's, it's a big component. Hey, now about the, about the earthworms, um, there are those that oppose chemistry and in a no-till situation, you do use chemistry, but then there are those that say chemistry cuts down and, and uh, earthworm counts. Tell me about the balance to have an amazing earthworm count to do your tillage and do all that, uh, create the porosity and all those things, but also using chemistry. Uh, we always plant treated seed. We will not plant any naked seed. Uh, we've always seen that pay uh, with the insecticides, but we have not seen it where that's in, been an influence on earthworm counts. Uh, in that which, thing, which thing has not influenced it? It has not been a, a negative influence. Treated seed your, hasn't? No, we have not seen that. Okay, what about herbicide? It increases in counts, and it's standard practice to plant treated seed. Okay, what about herbicide? Uh, we have not seen it with herbicides either. You know, okay. we're, we're aggressive in our pre's. Water hemp and polymer amaranth have made into our area. We're multi-mode pre's. We stay on top of our post applications. We're not seeing where any of that is negative to earthworm counts. It okay. still comes down, we're raising better crops uh, and then residue management, having a nice mat of residue in the ground. Uh, we're seeing what they can do to residue. They just die. they're just devouring it. They're just voracious. You know, when we get some moisture, when we're dry, they go mostly dormant. They're not up top. As soon as we get some rains, they're right up on top. You just start wiping residue back, and there's earthworms just moving all over. The earthworms, then, you know, like you said, they're bringing that stuff from different profiles up and down the profile, right? Which is what you want. You want that stuff. You want that nutrient to be moving between twelve inches and and the first half inch, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're not just our tillage. They are many things to us. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> benefits and negatives. Okay. Um, I think those people you talk about in Minnesota, I drive through there in the winter and I see all this beautiful black ground that's got too much curve to be tilled like it is, but I think they till it because it starts catching sun and that way they figure it gets warm and then they can <clears throat> plant it earlier in the season because that will have gained moisture. Is that the reason they're doing it? And if that's the case, you're missing out on that. Uh, we use uh, good row cleaners. So we make a black strip. We never move soil because if we do, we're making ourselves subject to erosion, especially in rolling ground. So we run a always a good row cleaner and we move the residue back so it warms up in the, in the area of the row. We have nine inches where it'll be 10 degrees warmer to help with germination. And then in between our 30 inch rows, that is staying cooler and we're retaining moisture. Okay, so and that happens, at planting. that happens at planting. Pardon? That happens at planting. It's not being done in the fall. Yeah. We're all about how we run our row cleaners. Uh, we, uh, we actually went to hydraulic ones and air ran ones are very popular too. We run hydraulic because they're more responsive. We can just tweak it and they just instantly change so we can get, so as we're going different topography, 
and if residue changes, uh, we can just tweak it instantly with a, within five foot of the planter moving, it's already, we've already changed it to what we need. Okay, so the, the point there is you're, even if it's a cold spring and you wanna put corn in the ground, you know, even April 28th or something up there, um, that row cleaner, it, that soil might still be cool when the soil, when the seed goes in, but by opening up nine inches, that then that gets direct sunlight, you'll be gaining temperature over the next couple of sunny days. Is that the idea? Absolutely. It's like in a matter of hours, you're you're already seeing warmth when you check with the thermometer. And uh, then that residue is keeping the ground covered during the early part of the growing season. And then the earthworms have all that to eat on. And then partway through the season, it magically disappears. <laughs> it's been devoured and it's been converted into nutrients in nutrient cycling. And then we have all the porosity from the worms and then the cycle just repeats with uh, the next crop's residue. But it's all about residue management. Uh, in 2006, John Deere came out with their bullet rotor and they also changed to a different style uh, chopper that was more aggressive. That was a big help for residue management. And one way we look at residue management that a lot of people that even no-till don't look it at it this way. When we are doing it, we are actually spreading not just residue, we're spreading nutrients for the next year because you have N, you have P, you have K, you have micros in your residue and you're spreading that. And if you were going out and just spreading nutrients, whether it's dry or liquid, if you had plug ports or plug nozzles, you'd be going, whoa, 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 we got to fix that. With a combine, I've watched people just make big wads and beaver dams and everything else. They're creating a problem for the next year to get through it with planting or seeding for the next crop, but they're also lumping nutrients that are going to decay. So to us, it's all about residue management at the combine. So you're talking about making sure that the stuff that's blowing out the back of the combine does so in a very evenly distributed manner is what I'm hearing. Exactly. Your spread pattern, spread width, all that really matters. By the way, uh, I've been around this whole thing for a while, but beaver dams, what are you talking about? Something coming out the back, what are you talking about? Uh, going into fields too wet and pushing with their heads, making big piles, they lift up, go again, go again. Uh, you're not just skipping over crop, you're leaving big piles of residue that's going to plug your planter or air seeder the next season. Let's talk about the benefits of no-till. Obviously, um, you're limited on, on labor. You said that. It's you, your brother, and two hired people. Uh, you got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> 70,000 acres you got to get over. So if you're out there chiseling and uh, ripping and, and cultivating and all that stuff, that's a lot of man hours over acres. That's one of the obvious benefits. What am I not thinking of or what's the person that's never done no-till sitting there saying, okay, probably some wear and tear on equipment, some diesels or anything, you know, expand on some of the benefits. Uh, our diesel use is, even with our lender, when we crunch numbers, he's like, I can't believe you guys cover those acres on that little diesel. And uh, it makes a huge difference there. Uh, our tractor hours, when we were a conventional operation and farming 9,000 acres, we were running a lot of 1,000 hours on, on our tractors, even higher some years. 
And now that we are no-till, uh, we're running we're running larger equipment, 60-foot equipment, seeders and planters. But now we are getting down our main full drives worth 350 hours a year. And that's double the acres. D double the acres, one-third as many hours. Granted, you're covering bigger swaths, but we just... Yeah, we were planting with 42-foot in that area, 40-foot uh, planter, 40-foot planters, and 42-foot air seeders. And when we were not really transitioned, we were doing a lot of tillage yet. And we were even trying to disc corn stalks, then seeding, and we go, no, this is self-defeating. We went into standing stalks. Uh, so we've doubled our acres and our hours have come down that much. Uh, our sprayers are very critical to us. We have two sprayers. Uh, but even if we conventionally tilled, we'd still own two sprayers. We would probably need double the help and we would probably have an extra million dollars worth of equipment sitting around. We'd have to have one, if not two more tractors and a whole lineup of tillage equipment. Right now we have two pieces. We have a, what they call a VT vertical till machine that we can go out and lightly stir a few areas that are real kind of prone to being wet to just stir the residue so we can get through them. And then we have a mulch finisher that we can go out and if we have a wet year, take care of some sprayer tracks. Uh, some people are so adamant on it that are in no-till like I'm not doing anything about my sprayer tracks, but then you're opening yourselves up to erosion. It's hard on equipment. We'll go take care of those tracks, level it back out, and then it's back to no. Okay, so you've got two pieces of tillage equipment that, that a, a, a traditionalist wouldn't even call really tillage equipment. You're not talking chisel plows, rippers, plows, uh, field cultivators, discs. You're talking about a vertical tillage, which is, you know, it's disking sort of, but you're doing it, you're just, you're just touching up some areas with it. Once yeah, more. yeah. So we have two pieces. Uh, the one is a 2009 that we bought new, and we feel we could probably retire with that if we want. <laughs> it does. So, so of the 17,000 acres, the stuff that you have to touch because it just had to have a problem is a few hundred acres every year? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then our VT machine, we added eight years, and we just, the only reason we traded is now we can get it where the gangs are hydraulically adjustable. So we can go from five to 15 degrees if we wanna manage our residue a little bit in those spots. And that's the only reason we traded. The one we had that was eight years old, that guy came and looked at it and bought it. And he said, I can't find anything wrong with it. He said, it's ready to go to the field. And we said, exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yields, it all comes down to yields. Granted, you're saving a whole bunch of money on employees, diesel, wear and tear on machinery, not having to have machinery, proof in the pudding. Are you making the same yields if you would have been conventional? The first couple years, we really struggled uh, trying to get dialed in on how to handle our residue, changing our chemical programs. Uh, and then three to five years was easier and five to 10 was even easier yet. Then we started seeing changes in the ground and earthworm counts. Uh, what we're saving on moisture is invaluable for us in our environment, uh, our yields have gone up significantly. But again, it, it's multifaceted. It's properly addressing our fertility program. Uh, it's working with our focusing on soil health biology. Uh, it's having better no-till seeding equipment. And now 
what's out there is readily available for everybody. 20 years ago, it wasn't there. You couldn't get it, or it was just so new. Uh, like I said, dealers didn't even want to it sell. Sounds to me like maybe your your, your dealer. I don't know, man. Uh, I think maybe it was a good time to find a dealer who wouldn't even bring in the stuff for you that you wanted twenty some years ago. Um, I got neighbors out here who say that you can't do this. You gotta till because you're gonna have a compaction problem. And you answered that with uh, earthworms. Do you have a compaction problem? Uh, no, we don't. I take a potentiometer and i push whoa, it whoa 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 thermometer pedometer what potentiometer uh it will uh measure the uh well the density to push through harder layers and we've noticed as we've gotten no-till that layer is disappearing the earthworms and our roots the we love to see huge root systems and our and our root systems have increased in size what I love to see is like after we plant corn, the next year when we're out seeding soybeans, if I can't pull those corn stalks still out of the ground, I know we have a good root system. And then we'll even find it where the root ball is still in the soil two and three years later. That is water, air, nutrients, all that is being able to get into the soil easier. So we've actually checking our soils, the longer we no-till them, the softer our ground has gotten is uh, between earthworms and root channels, root mass, because all that root mass that's decaying is helping in the soil. In my book, this one right here, where I talk about the past, present, and future of agriculture, I talk about tillage being, we're gonna look back at it someday, the way we look at using leeches for medical treatment. Do you agree? There's going to be, I think, a more pronounced shift from what's happened in the last 20 years where no-till has gotten to be a more accepted process in certain parts of the country. I think the next 20 to 30 years are going to even be more dramatic because you look now, it's coming into the era of carbon and uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and it's a political issue. It's a social issue. Uh, we did it. We didn't ever even thought about the social issue or anything like that. We go, we just want to be better and we want to take care of this ground. We want to leave it better than we found it. If we're the fourth generation, if the fifth generation needs to be successful, we've got to leave it better. It was a pretty basic approach. Now you look at it, it's coming into the true social fabric aspect and political aspect. And USDA now is talking about facilitating help on carbon programs and everything else. Uh, it's, we're entering a whole new era. I, I agree completely with what you just said. There's gonna be issues about if you keep tilling, you're releasing carbon. There's gonna be not only that, that you're burning all those fossil fuels that are releasing carbon. And whether you agree or disagree with the politics of it, the point is it's coming. And you know, it's kind of like in football, they talk about exactly. hearing the footsteps. When, when you hear the, you know, I was ready to catch a ball and I heard the footsteps the footsteps are, are coming. So I, I agree with you. Advice to this is our last question for uh, Lee Lubers with Lubers Farms and Gregory, South Dakota, talking all about no-till advice to the, uh, the person that says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm starting to believe all those things. And I, I like it, Lee, what's the one or two pieces of advice that you would tell them uh, they're going to start, they're going to, they're going to experiment. What do they need to know? Don't be afraid to try it. The only way we all learn is to try new things. Uh, you don't have to do 20 fields do two fields, 
do something at your comfort level, uh, try some new things, focus on your residue management, uh, start, you know, committing to the process. And, you know, it's only going to happen if, if you make the changes. And if you want to learn more, you know, or you want direct line access to information that somebody like Lee can share with you that's been doing 25, 30, 35 years in some cases, no-till over 17,000 acres, you can become a paying member of the Extreme Ag family. That's right. The people like the team, like Lee, give information and have, you have free access to them. If you if you decide to sign up, spend a little bit of money, and it will, again, shorten your curve. Uh, and you do that at ExtremeAg.farm. His name is Lee Lubers. My name is Damian Mason. This is the Cutting the Curve podcast. We covered a lot of stuff on no-till. There'll be more after this, I'm sure, because we got so many more things we can learn. Lee, thanks for being here. Hey. Until next time, it's the Cutting the Curve podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Cutting the Curve. Could your farming operation benefit from better drainage, lower costs, and increased yields? Advanced drainage systems can help. From drainage solutions to irrigation and water recycling, at ADS, their reason is water.